Um, but 85 of us converted together and mostly young families, right? Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Orthodox Christian Podcast. And it's my pleasure to be speaking with Father Michael Gillis today. And for everyone listening, Father Michael, why don't you just take a second to explain a little bit about who you are and uh, what you spend your time doing? So uh, my name is Father Michael Gillis. Um, as Max said, I'm the priest of Holy Nativity Antiochian Orthodox Church in Langley, British Columbia. Uh, I spend my time doing pastoral work, <laughs> talking to people, uh, comforting people, encouraging people, um, helping people draw close to God. That's kind of what a, a priest does, is helps people draw close to God. So uh, that's what I do. And you've been a priest at Holy Nativity for how long now, Father? For 20 years, 20 years I've been at Holy Nativity. Uh, we started as a small mission with about 20 people. And uh, now we are a uh, moderate-sized church and uh, bustling with lots of, uh, lots of children. <clears throat> I would imagine that, uh, I don't know, 40% of our community is 12 and under. <laughs> Which is a great problem to have. Lots of kids running around. It means the yeah, future yeah. is looking bright. It's beautiful. We just need to find a place to put them all. <laughs> <laughs> so, Father, uh, from what I know of your story, you didn't grow up in the Orthodox Church. So if you can just walk us through a little bit of your religious background and lead up to the point where you encountered the Orthodox Church, that would be really helpful. Okay. I started out as uh, my first um religious experiences were as part of the Jesus movement in the 1970s. Um, and uh, from there, I wandered into uh, various forms of evangelicalism. And uh, because my wife was in a Pentecostal church, or my future wife, I started attending um, an Assemblies of God, which is what these uh, groups were called in the States. And um, then sort of pursued uh, my religious life and ended up in a, a community that had a sort of semi-communal uh, uh, approach to things. We shared a lot of things together. We had uh, men's houses and women's houses and um, but as a community, we began to look at um, older and older books, and uh, we began um, feeling it was very important to memorize the scripture uh, and to recite the scripture from memory. So we memorized large parts of the New Testament and um, would, as part of our daily worship, we gathered every day at six in the morning uh, to pray, and we would recite from memory chapters and chapters of the Bible. The last big book we memorized was the Gospel of John, and that really sort of challenged our uh, whole thinking about what the Gospel was about and how out of step contemporary evangelicalism was, but we didn't know what else to look for. Um, and uh, at the same time, we were reading um, what we came to know later were the, called the Church Fathers. We At the time, we were just reading old Christians, right? Because the, the new ones, the people who had written in the last hundred years, weren't really addressing the concerns we were encountering as a community, living, um, sharing lots of things and praying daily um, and uh, reciting scripture from memory. So, uh, but we found in these uh, early fathers, particularly the Desert Fathers, a lot of wisdom that was very helpful for us. And eventually someone gave us a copy of um, 
Theophan, the recluse's book called um, Kindling the Divine Spark. And uh, I read it and was amazed how this fellow in 19th century Russia was understanding and approaching the scriptures just like the desert fathers of the fourth and fifth century, fourth, fifth, sixth century. And we just thought, how could this be possible? And so we acquired more Orthodox books. At the time, back in the early 90s, there was very, very little in English. I mean, we basically got everything that was available and, and we became convinced that we needed to become Orthodox and we were able to contact um, the Antiochian Archdiocese and they had already received a large group of evangelicals about eight or nine years earlier. So they were willing to uh, catechize a, a group of uh, evangelicals uh, and bring us into the church as a community. Uh, and we entered the church in December 1996. So that's, okay. that's the way, that's how it happened. <laughs> So in that community, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what that meant practically in terms of did you guys buy land together? Um, did you still have jobs in the quote unquote secular world? Because it is such a unique experience that you went through. Yeah, well, we kind of lived by a principle that, that we, had, we had personal property. We had things we were responsible for. We all had our families. We all lived in homes close together. And the principle was basically this. If you needed something or wanted something that was someone else's, you always had to ask. But if someone asked you, you always had to say yes, unless you had a, a like a reason, like, well, I'm mowing my lawn this afternoon. You can't have the lawnmower. You can have it tomorrow, but I'm mowing my lawn. And then if I received something from someone, I had to return it in as good or better condition that I received it. So if I was using it and it broke, I was responsible to repair it and get it fixed. If I, um, you know, smashed someone's car, I had to repair it to get it repaired. If, um, you know, uh, I had to clean up my messes, right? And uh, we had a community of, you know, leaders, elders, whatever you wanted to call it, want to call it, who met weekly and dealt with problems, you know. Um, and uh, my responsibility in that community for many years was to oversee, we had two houses with single women in it, uh, in them, and my responsibility was to oversee the single women, uh, which mainly <laughs> mainly involved crawling under their house to retrieve dead raccoons or um, fixing plumbing or, uh, you know, occasionally something spiritual, but mostly just making sure that uh, their living situation was okay. Okay. That, yeah, that's, that's helpful to know. And um, did this originally emerge from a reading of Acts of the Apostles where they're sharing everything in communion exactly. and then you were trying to emulate that? Exactly. Something like we were, we were like biblical literalists. We wanted to, we, we, you know, we believe in Pentecostal-ish or charismatic-ish. We had some relationships with people in the vineyard in Anaheim and, uh, but we were kind of more radical as a group. We wanted to, uh, we wanted to do this. We wanted to do it, right? We weren't con content just to sing some songs and maybe see some miraculous signs and wonders. We wanted to live the life. Uh, and of course, that then sort of alienated us from other people because they would feel like, well, what are you saying that I have to live that way? And well, no, we're, we're saying that we think this is the way we should live. But, you know, just it seems people can't be around that without, you know, I mean, they read Acts too. And, and so uh, 
and I'm sure we were pretty arrogant and, you know, because we thought, you know, we're going to bring about this thing that God's doing on the earth and because we're being obedient and, but we actually had a lot of issues, a lot of personality problems. And uh, we had a pedophile in our midst that wreaked havoc, havoc. Um, and so we had some issues and they were, um, yeah. So, I mean, it was definitely not heaven on earth, but we we wanted heaven on earth. We were willing to do crazy things like like memorize large sections of the Bible and you know. And and did it ever get to a place um, like it sounds like there were some wonderful aspects about it? Obviously, some darker aspects, like you just mentioned. Uh, did it um, have a central leader that was organizing things and had people gathering around him? And, and did it have that uh, temptation to veer almost towards uh, like a cult-like adoration of, of this person? Or, or did you steer clear of that? Well, no, I, I don't think there was a cult-like adoration. But he, um, particularly... He, before we were orthodox we had nothing else but ourselves like we had nothing outside ourselves and so the leadership structure and the particular you know leader of the structure we pretty much obeyed and submitted to the whole structure and um because we had nothing else we didn't it it really started to uh kind of blow up once we came into the church and we had a real bishop so we now had a point of authority, a, a point of, um, you know, instruction outside our group. And that's when, um, you know, and God knows, maybe we could have made, maybe I sinned in rushing too quickly towards something else, or maybe someone else sinned by holding too tightly onto what we had before. Only God knows. Only only God knows, right? But it was pretty rocky for a couple of years after we came into the church because uh, we had some people in the community who really, really wanted to hold on to what we had been and others in the community who were really, really eager to move beyond that and sort of discover what we had been missing, right? Uh, and uh, so, yeah. But so we're, all, it's, we're all friends now. It, it just, it was just a rough transition. <laughs> Right, right. Well, and understandably, going from something that's very free-floating, as it were, to something more structured like orthodoxy would be quite the jump. Yeah. And from what you were describing, it sounded like it was through reading that you um, that put orthodoxy on the radar for you, and then right. you kind of found something that was a, a living expression of that. Did you know of any actual orthodox in your community prior or was that the sequence oh, that it was reading right. to searching we knew about orthodoxy in theory you know sort of the distant cousins of the roman catholic church i mean something like that that you know the ones with the funny hats and the you know domes in eastern europe that, that was all we knew right um and so when we actually realized that those people believed, at least attempted to practice the same, uh, and certainly had the same ecclesiology as Basil the Great and John Chrysostom, and then uh, the same spiritual tradition as the Desert Fathers, we're like, well, I mean, we have to, we have to become a part of that. We can't, I mean, if it's there, then, you know, we for years we've been saying, that's it, that's it, that's it. Okay, then suddenly it's in front of you and you go, like we became Orthodox before, or, or at least we decided to become Orthodox before, like we, under, we knew how they understood the saints and Mary and all these things that weren't part of our 
Protestant tradition. So our catechetical year, you know, we would have a priest come every Saturday and talk to us for several hours. It was quite a oh, okay, this is what we what you believe, and I. Okay, help me wrap my mind around this. How is this possible? Uh, but there was never never a doubt that this was the right way that or the right way for us to go. We just didn't some things didn't make sense. You know, we didn't like, for example, the um the aliveness of the saints and the fact that uh they are still active and we can have relationships with them and uh, uh and the virginity you have a virginity of mary and why that's significant and what that means and even though i was able to sort of wrap my head around it you know because i was willing to okay this is what the church has been teaching all this time and i've missed out on it i better get up to speed right so i tried to wrap my mind around understanding it, but it was several years, several years before I had a kind of emotional or inner connection with the things. And even, you know, at my whole life confession before I, the day before I came into the church, I, I said this to the priest who I was confessing to. I said, look, I understand and accept this theology about Mary and the saints, but I just don't have any emotional connection to it. It just, I, I just don't connect with it. And he said, okay, well, do you have a problem with other people who do? And I said, oh, no, I don't, not at all. I, I mean, I understand it and I, I'm willing to accept it. I just don't connect with it. And he said, this is great. <laughs> he says, don't, don't worry about it. The mother of God, she'll, she'll get you. She'll come to you. Don't worry about it, right? <laughs> And sure enough, a few years later, I had a very profound experience with the Mother of God. And, you know, kind of ever since then, I've come to know her is the right word, but um, but maybe know her, maybe um, respect and honor and really feel a, a devotion and an understanding of who she is and why she is so significant. And, but you know, that's another conversation maybe we could have some time about that. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So part of the reason the community joined this, uh, with the Orthodox church was because of uh, a sense of connection or maybe fulfillment that you were reading these texts. So you were trying to practice them to the best of your ability. You perhaps thought that this was something from a bygone era that was very attractive and then it's actually alive. But were there other reasons that, uh, drove, uh, yourself personally, but also the community as a whole towards the Orthodox church in particular? Um, no, just, just an, a sense of integrity. Like, look, all these years we've been trying to do this and believing that this was right. And now suddenly it's, we're confronted with this reality that there is a church in the world today that still practices this ecclesiology, still believes this theology, still, and, and what was, I guess, personally very important to me, still practices this, this spiritual, you know, I didn't have the words for it at the time, but now we would call it the, the neptic tradition, this tradition of, of stillness and prayer of the heart, where, uh, you know, uh, by invoking the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And um, which is, it's, it's a, it's a very, very deep well, very, very deep well. Um, you know, and I had just been putting in my ladle, right, and drinking little bits out of it and said, this is, this is the water. This is the real stuff. This is it right and but then the question okay are you going to jump in or not right <laughs> and it's like well it's kind of scary because there's lots of 
you know, a like after we had decided we became catechumens, we attended our first divine liturgy. Oh, okay. This is how you do it, right? Or it was different. And um, it, I mean, I truly for the first, like through our catechumenate in the first year or two, I really never prayed at all during the divine liturgy because I was a deacon. I just, what's next? What do I have to do next? What's the next movement? What's the next thing I say? What do I, where do I go? Where do I stand? What? It was just learning the, the, the services. But it's kind of like playing basketball, right? When you start, it's like, oh, what? You know, you don't understand. But after you play a while, you just know that when I throw the ball over there, that person will be there to get it and do a layup, right? That when we start moving a certain way, I just, so I, I'm not thinking about it anymore. I'm just now in it. I'm living it. I'm praying it. I'm, I'm being it somehow, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, that's the strength of a liturgy, right? Or of the divine liturgy. Absolutely. And with that group of people, um, I don't know if you mentioned it already, but can you tell us about how many people were in that group, about what their ages were, whether the majority of them stayed uh, after the, the switch to orthodoxy? Yeah, so um, there were 85 of us that converted together. Um, you know, there were, uh, we lost a few before that, but, um, but 85 of us converted together and mostly young families, right? Mostly like our, our, my kids were, I don't know, uh, the youngest was 10 and the oldest was 15 or thereabout, or the youngest was eight and the oldest was 15. And, uh, yeah, we were just young families and mostly, I mean, a couple of older people, a um, couple of, you know, a, ha a handful of single people. Um, and we, we came into the church that way. Uh, we, we didn't have any clergy, so two of our prominent leaders were ordained priests. And three of the more secondary leaders, including myself, were ordained deacons uh, because we all had theological training of various sorts. And uh, there, you know, there was this community to oversee. I did a lot of youth work. So immediately I started working for the Antiochian camp in Los Angeles, the youth camp every summer. Um, doing youth work after I after a couple two or three years and I got my feet under myself liturgically I began traveling with the bishop writing speeches he, his English wasn't very good at the beginning so helping him write speeches you know he'll write something give it to him he goes no 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 yeah, change it change it okay okay no no not this not this <laughs> you know and you help him have something and it always felt great when you would hear him quote, like years later, quote something you knew you wrote in one of his speeches. <laughs> and uh, that, that particular sentence he liked, you know, and he's still quoting it. It always, always felt so good. <laughs> and, and for those listening, it might be helpful to give just like a brief um, definition of the Antiochian, uh, Antiochian Orthodox Church, because it is somewhat unique in that uh, the leadership does uh, come not all the way down, but at least from what I understand, the uh, metropolitan of North America, sort of the bishop among the bishops, uh, comes from Syria, or at least has to speak Arabic, if I'm correct. Right. Well, okay, bishop among bishops is not correct. That would be a Roman Catholic mm. ecclesiology. Mm. Um, in the Orthodox ecclesiology, we would have bishops. They're all the same rank in terms of being a bishop so they all have one vote at the table but they may have different administrative responsibilities 
so that's where you would have, say, one bishop's administrative responsibility um, might be uh, to lead the bishops in the Senate, right? But he still only gets one vote, right? He can't, he can't override anything. He still only gets. So that would be the the patriarch, and then the bishop of a large area would be called a metropolitan bishop, and then the bishops that assisted him would be called regional bishops or uh, assistant bishops or what whatever helper bishops. <laughs> And um, yeah, so the Antiochian Archdiocese is follows the Greek system. So in fact, the official name of our church is the Greek Orthodox Catholic Church of Antioch. <laughs> That's the official name. Um, so it's the Greek Orthodox Church of Antioch in Syria. Well, Antioch's in Turkey now, but they had to move to Damascus, Syria, because the Turkish Muslims were much more violent against the Christians than the Arab Muslims. So uh, they were able to flee to Antioch, uh, to Damascus. Of course, now with the wars, um, the leadership is mostly in Lebanon now. So, So that's uh, the Antiochians have never been sort of, uh, you know, we often talk about Rome and then the second Rome being Constantinople and the third Rome being uh, uh, Moscow. Yeah. Uh, but the Antiochians have always been sort of persecuted and uh, and very cosmopolitan. They haven't been very interested at all in you know, promoting Arab culture the same way you often find Greeks, Orthodox Christians trying to, you know, feeling that promoting Greek culture is very important, um, and, or or Russian culture, or you know, the Romanian, whatever. But the Antiochians have just been much more evangelical, not in theology, but in the sense of just reaching out to everyone. Uh, doesn't doesn't matter. Uh, Antioch was a cosmopolitan city. Uh, there were always multiple languages spoken in the Antiochian world. So, uh, so for them to bring on a bunch of uh, English-speaking, you know, repenting evangelical Christians wasn't it wasn't strange for them it, it was like oh okay sure we'll we'll help you and uh, they knew it would take years for us to kind of work through our stuff and kind of figure out what it is to be orthodox and but they were patient and kind to us and uh, and very open i i expect that um you know, eventually there will be an English speaking, like a native Canadian or American metropolitan. He'll have to speak Arabic because he's got to sit on the on the synod of Antioch, which uses usually Arabic, historically Greek, but he's got to speak the language that the synod uses when they communicate with each other. But um, whether or not he is um, racially Arabic or not, I don't think these, the Antiochians don't care about that. It does, it's not important. Mm. Mm -hmm. And from what I know about that transition, when, when you guys joined the Orthodox Church, you were also uh, looking around. And for a time, and I, I don't want to get too polemic, but you did consider... Uh, the Roman Catholic Church to a certain degree, and mm -hmm. what was the deciding factor or factors? Uh, for us, it, uh, the way we saw it at that time, the mistake that grew into Protestant evangelicalism began as early as Augustine. 
not not that I mean Augustine's a saint, but some of his way of looking at things really became formative in Western Christianity and sort of led to a way of understanding what it means to be a Christian and how, who God is and how one relates to God uh, that was much more juridical, right? Much more like a legal system, you know, you do this, God does this, this has this result, as though it were a logical system of pluses and minuses and merits and demerits. And, and you know, when the Protestants, early Protestants sort of rebelled against the corruptions that developed in the Roman Catholic Church, um, they really only became a mirror image of the Roman Catholics themselves, right? They, um, they maybe understood faith versus works, you know, they understood faith differently, but it was still the same continuum of faith versus works, right? It was, it wasn't, you know, outside that. So that's why we decided to go with the Orthodox. They're, they're, their understanding of spirituality and how one knows God and relates to God uh, was outside of that whole system that eventually developed into the evangelical Protestantism we were trying to flee from. Right. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. And from what I've studied in church history, it really struck me that uh, the West does have these superstars of faith, like St. Augustine and later after him, St. Thomas Aquinas, whereas in the Eastern Church, it's hard. There are big figures like Saint Saint Maximus the Confessor or the Cappadocian Fathers and so forth. But it's harder to have uh, a superstar in that setting. And it mm -hmm. seems like part of that could have been that you had uh, more major centers of Christianity in the East that were very productive early on, whereas in the West it was by and large, North Africa, and you had Rome as well, but it wasn't as easy to kind of come across these really formative theologians early on. So the strong guys really stood out much more in the West. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm kind of with, um, you know, Metropolitan Callistos Ware uh, in thinking that it probably would have been best if we could have found a way to work together because the mysticism of the East does sometimes lack some some of the rational common sense that you find in the West, and uh, and certainly at least my experience with Western Christianity. Although there are exceptions, right? There's uh, you know you find some Carmelites and some others who who, who really do have a profound desert sort of spirituality but by and large um you know it's that kind of spiritual early patristic mind that's that's missing right uh so anyway it is what it is i mean i i have roman catholic friends i'm i'm not angry at anyone i'm i'm don't i'm i'm not you know God is the judge of all. I'm perfectly convinced that uh, the same grace that would possibly have mercy on me will have mercy on, will therefore have mercy on others. So I'm, I'm not you know, worried or upset about things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you um, joined the Orthodox Church and this community around you, were there, you mentioned actually some challenges uh, being the, the veneration of the saints and the, the practical reality of that more than just the, the theory of it. Um, can you talk a little bit about that as well as other challenges that um, were encountered along the way in orthodoxy? Um, yeah, sure. Um, okay, there were those um, sort of practical um, things like, okay, kiss the icon. It, 
First, it was just an act of obedience, right? Okay, because that's what they tell me to do. Um, it really took a long time before it started to, um, like I really experienced what I was doing as venerating like today's St. Elijah Day. So when I kiss the icon of St. Elijah, I am venerating that person, right? That the, the veneration given to the image passes through the image to the prototype, classic St. John of Damascus. So you could understand that up here in your mind, but to actually experience that, it was just, so, so there were certainly elements of obedience. You know, why are you doing this? I'm doing it because this is the way, you know, you're, you're, I was told to do it. Well, you know, what, don't you have any self-determination? Don't you have it? Not right now. I'm just laying my self-determination at the feet of the church and letting the church teach me. And uh, several years down the road, you know, I had enough experience, both like personal spiritual experience and an experience with the theology and the, the practice to begin to um, find ways of uh, prayer and um, piety that fit me better within the tradition uh, and whereas others not so much and so I don't do those as much right but it I had to kind of embrace the whole thing at first and really okay we're going to say the Akathist and the mother of God tonight let's say the Akathist that's what it says on the calendar so we're going to do that right and you do that for a few years and then you start to have a, a sense of uh, you know how that's helpful or not. Another thing that was really difficult was um, at the time that I converted, um, there wasn't a lot of English-speaking Orthodox churches, and so everything was very, very cultural if you went to the greek church it was greek if you went to the russian church it was russian and most of the antiochian churches in la were arabic right and uh i had never been exposed to arabic culture <laughs> it was trippy <laughs> it was very very different and um but that really didn't have anything to do with the church. It just had to do with my new uh, church fellows who uh, saw the world and interacted in the world really different than differently than this uptight, scholarly, uh, idealistic, you know, white boy from L.A. who did everything with his mind and. <laughs> It was quite different, quite different. <laughs> so it took a while. And and with that community, did you guys immediately switch over to doing the Orthodox liturgies, or was there a, a transition period where you slowly incorporated elements of it? What did that look like? So while we were catechumens, we uh, we continued our daily service, and we did matins with the typica. Um, and then towards the end, but every Sunday we would go to an Orthodox church and our catechist suggested that we uh, not only go to Antiochian churches, but to Greek churches, to, to all. So we would call up a church and say, you know, there's 85 of us, we'd like to just come and observe. And, uh, and so if they said, okay, so we'd ask them, well, what time do the services start? And they'd say, oh, well, we're going to start matins at 9 o'clock. So all 85 of us would be there at 10 minutes before 9, sitting in a block, 
you know, on the first four rows or five rows, just waiting, waiting, waiting. And nobody would come. And the, the priest would come out and blessed is our God, start, you know, and one chanter, oh man, and you know, and then slowly, slowly the church would fill up and you know, three hours later, it, the church was packed and the service was over. And it's like, oh, okay, wow, you know. <laughs> and then we'd go to a different church and try it. And uh, I mean, always we would call ahead and make sure it was okay. And so, yeah, it was. So when we we became Orthodox, it was um, a few weeks before Christmas. And uh, like we came into the church on a Sunday. So we had to do the liturgy the next Sunday. We were already doing matins in the morning, so we knew how to do that. Of course, in those days, all the books that you needed to do the services, uh, very few of them were English. We actually had to use some Catholic texts because some um, Maronite Catholic texts because they just didn't exist in English. Um, so we practiced that week, and the next Sunday, you know, with the book in front of my face, again and again, in peace, let us pray to the Lord, right? And then the choir would look at me, and I'd look at the choir, and they'd go, Lord, have mercy. And then I would say the next line, right? <laughs> just like, okay, this, we're just, what does the book say you do next? Go stand here. Okay, I'll go stand there, right? And that's that's what we did. And and then, of course, and then after three weeks, Christmas hits, and it's like, ah, doing the Christmas services. Of course, we had to do every single service according to the book with just because that's who we were. And, you know, and then uh, then before you know it, theophany and another, you know, those are the longest services of the year. Uh, and then Lent, boom. And But you know what? Okay, we we did it. And. Uh, we started to get the feel for it, and the, and it was good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for, for those that may not be familiar, uh, matins is essentially morning prayer, typica. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Father, but it's essentially the the Sunday service without the priest. So, what you would do on a on a Sunday is that accurate? Yeah, actually, it it would be done uh, as as part of the preparation for liturgy. So uh, some communities, uh, like in the Russian community, they don't do matins. They would do matins as part of Vespers the night before and then begin with a typical service leading into the liturgy. So it's if you were going to do every single bit that is there to be done, which would take forever, you would finish matins with Tipica and Tipica would lead into the liturgy. Mm, mm. Well, thank you for the clarification. Mm. Um, and also, I, I should say that it is unusual for uh, so many people to come to uh, morning prayer or to matins at an Orthodox church. So if the, if the joke was lost on anyone, 85 people there, and usually there's no one there, or, you know, a few people, a smattering of people, but hardly anyone. <laughs> right, people who want to pray in silence, <laughs> they come yeah. in yeah. and then, uh, yeah, and then the families start to show up, and uh, yeah. so the whole, it's not like Protestant worship where, okay, everybody's there at 10, we do the service, and then everybody leaves, and it's, you know, it's not like that, it's more like um, a smorgasbord, not a smorgasbord, but uh, like a pool, a spa, right? And you, you get in and some people need more and some people need less. And some people can take it longer, some people can't, right? And it's more like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good analogy for it. Or it's, the, it's sort of the warm-up lesson before yeah. the yeah. game begins. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. exactly, yeah. Uh, so, um, after that, did the, the community become an, an individual parish or, or did it spread out and become multiple parishes? What was the future of well, well, we became a parish. And then after about three or four years, um, uh, some of that was difficult, trouble, you know, turbulent, but not, um, you know, it was all part of growing up. And 
one of our priests uh, was, went off and started a mission in Palm Springs. And uh, a couple of years after that, the bishop asked me if I would be willing to become a priest and uh, go and start a mission in British Columbia. And I was my early 40s. What else am I going to do with my life? Yay, let's, you know. Let's go follow God and see what happens, right? And um, worst case scenario, I can go back to doing what I was doing before. But you don't get many chances in your life to sort of sell all and follow God, right? I mean, you know, it's a it's an interesting concept to sell all and follow, and. It's not something you can just say, oh, I'm going to do that today, because then you just end up a street person and other people have to take care of you. It really has to be an opportunity God sets up for you. And then, um, you know, it's like Jesus called and said, follow me. You know, it wasn't like if three days before Matthew, the tax collector, said, ah, enough of this. I'm going to go into the desert and see if I can find God. That way it wouldn't have worked. It was when Jesus came and said, follow me. That's when Matthew said, yeah, enough of this. I'm going to go follow Jesus, right? But if he had waited three days later, it would have been too late, right? So... It's it's like, okay, when Jesus calls, then you know, if we are if we can, you know, and it's always a risk. It's always a it's a big risk, right? You are going to lose everything. The question isn't that. The question is, will God catch me? <laughs> and uh there's only one way to find out. <laughs> you gotta jump. And okay, my kids were older. One of them, uh, two of them got married. Just uh, one of them had been married about two years. Another one was getting married. So, and my youngest daughter was in college already, university. So it wasn't that I was, you know, putting my children on the altar. And if it fails, my children would be in the street starving. The only if it if it failed, it would just be me and my wife with nothing, and I'd get a job at McDonald's, and we would have found a way to survive. But um, so so we took the risk and we went for it. And what what did that experience teach you? Well, at least it, it taught me a uh, humility because, like. There's no arrogance in trusting in God. You can't, it's not like, yeah, God took care of me. You see, it's like, oh, it's like scary. It's, um, Lord have mercy every, every time you have to pay a bill, every time you have to figure out what you're going to do next. It really is this physical experience of prayer, right? Your whole life becomes prayer. Um, and, and God was, God was, God is always faithful, but he was particularly merciful to us. And, um, and things have gone very well and he's taken care of us. Not that we always knew what was happening next, or but we never had to, um, you know, give up and go away either. Mm -hmm. And Father, there's a decent amount of people listening that are interested in orthodoxy, exploring orthodoxy, and they might not have a good sense of what the next steps are, um, just in terms of exploring the church, or perhaps if you could go back in time and speak to a younger version of yourself and say, um, here are some things that you could practice or investigate. What, what would you say to yourself or what would you say to that person that's interested in orthodoxy, but not at this point orthodox? Two things. One, nowadays there's a lot more books, uh, just a lot more books out there podcasts and 
like, you know, back in the early 90s, there was very, very little in English. <clears throat> so, you know, read, listen to podcasts, understand that orthodoxy is diverse um, and not everything that everybody says will appeal to you. Uh, we Orthodox Christians don't always agree with each other. Many of the saints had disagreements with each other. Um, it's not, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, so don't feel like, oh, you know, it's this monolith. So it's not, it's a living organism, like a tree or something. It's, it's a, it's all one, but it's alive. It's not static. So read and then, and then do. So, um, get a prayer book and just start saying prayers, right? You don't have to make a commitment to anything, right? But just like, oh, okay, here's an Orthodox prayer book. I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to say the, this little page of you know prayer, right? You don't have to like, please don't bite off more than you can chew, right? Just some little bit and just start saying it every day or twice a day, or as much as you want. Just start saying the prayer and let, let it work on you, right? Let it, let it work on you. Attend Orthodox worship services. Just go and see, just go see, right? Go, uh, just go be there. I often told, tell like first timers, um, they come in with lots of questions and say, look, I will be happy to have a discussion with you, answer as much as possible all of your questions, but give it six weeks. Just, just let, just soak in it for a while. Just let it wash over you for a few weeks. Then let's sit down, ask me all the questions you have and as, and as much as I can, I'll answer them. Maybe I won't be able to answer some of them. Um, and and just just see. And then the kicker is if they hang out for a while and they're still not sure and they've been there a while, I'll say to them, all right, well, go back to where you were before and experience that again. And see if that doesn't, you know, help bring clarity to you and it almost always does it almost always uh, they they get a sense of oh okay yeah now i remember why i was dissatisfied with that and um you know but first you know some people get it right away or want to get it like i wanted to get it right away i didn't really get it right away but i wanted to get it right away uh, and other people, it takes years and years, and that's okay, right? We don't have, it's not like the four spiritual laws where you got to close the deal or else you're, you know, what if you get hit by a truck tomorrow? You know, you've got to close the deal. Uh, it's, no, you're already in God's hands. He's already guiding you and leading you. And um, So there's only more for you. You don't. You don't have to, like, worry about what if I don't cross the line in time? There is no no line. There's just a direction, right? So go the direction, and, and God will help you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Um, one of the things that I found, this is kind of drawing back on the, the Jesus prayer that you mentioned at the, the beginning of the conversation, but when I was investigating orthodoxy, um, my now Godfather baptismal sponsor, he wasn't then, of course, but he said, if you're, if you're looking at orthodoxy, it's going to provide you with tools that, that won't break and you can trust these things. So things like the Jesus prayer, things like the liturgy. And I think that it takes a little while to see how amazing these things are. And mm -hmm. that's why it's really important to give it a shot of, Sometimes I say to people even, well, give it three months or something. And I think that's advice that I received as well, because there is so much variation 
in the different services of the Orthodox. It is also so unusual compared to if you're used to, uh, say, Protestant uh, evangelical liturgy that's more, um, you know, has sort of the band that goes up there, and then you've got the sermon, and then perhaps there's communion, but there's a lot of different parts in Orthodoxy. It just takes time to get used to it, but there's also a, a certain beauty to it that can only be appreciated in time. And um, yeah, I think I think those are those are wise pieces of advice, Father, that people would find really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Uh, you know, I, I like to, you know, some people want to couch, you know, orthodoxy versus anything else in terms of what is, you know, what is right and what is wrong. And I don't think that's a very helpful way. I mean, I do have opinions about that, but it's not a very helpful way. For me, orthodoxy has helped me be a Christian, like actually be it, actually experience, not just like accept Jesus as my savior and then, you know, try what whatever comes next and get busy with things, right? Like orthodox Christianity has helped me actually Sin less, right? Actually, um, see myself differently, and encounter and in know and experience God more profoundly. Um, and that's the reason why I'm a Christian, not because I think it's right and everything else is wrong. I, you know. I do think it's right, but I also think that there is a lot of right in other places too. <laughs> uh, it's just, um, I, I wasn't able to uh, become, to be the, be a Christian, right? This has helped me be a Christian and I, that's my reason why I continue to to be an Orthodox Christian. Mm -hmm. So if I can summarize just using some different words, it sounds like what you're saying is in Orthodoxy or within Christianity, there's a continuum. You would see Orthodoxy as perhaps the fullest expression of Christianity, but other traditions or denominations, etc., are on that continuum. So it's not that it's a dichotomy of like either or, that uh, these things are all evil and wicked and all the silly people are over there. And then we've got all the amazing people in orthodoxy. But um, I think Callistos where talks about this too, that uh, there's a fullness in orthodoxy and the other um, parts of Christianity have some degree of participation in that. Of course, like you want to have God at the top. You want to, you don't want to put the Orthodox church above God, I suppose, but <laughs> there is this continuum and, um, and it is ultimately helpful for your walk with with Christ and right. so forth. Right, because it's not about being more right. I mean, mm. you, I mean, it's ironic because ortho means straight or correct or right, right, orthodox, right? We're the right ones. Um, but that's, uh, and I, I must admit that in the beginning, I felt pretty good about myself that, oh, now I'm one of the right ones, right? Or the, eh, but almost immediately, the Holy Spirit found ways to make sure that I realized how not right I was. <laughs> and um, But that is the very process of salvation, right? That's what delivers us from ourselves. Um, it's not about being right, and that's the end of the story. It's about being saved, being transformed by the renewing of our mind, the transfigured to become like Jesus. That's what it's about. Absolutely. Well, that's a wonderful place to end it for today, Father Michael. So. Uh, I just want to thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you, and um, I wish you the very best, Father. Thank you. Thank you, Max. Take care. Bye.
Hey guys, thanks for checking out that episode with Father Michael Gillis. I really enjoyed chatting with him and think we had a pretty good conversation. If you are interested in submitting a question, uh, there's a link in the description that you can go to a Google form and send a question that way. Or there's also on the about page on the YouTube channel, um, another link there. So either of those will work. Unfortunately, I cannot put a link on the actual video until we have 1,000 subscribers. So if you have a friend or family member that would enjoy the episode, please do send it to them. If you haven't subscribed, make sure you subscribe. And if you know someone that would be a wonderful guest, please put their name in the comments below and I'll see what I can do to get a hold of them. Until next time, have a peaceful week.